Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack, where we talk superheroes, movies, animation, and comics. I am your host, Josh Scar, and joining me this week is Alex, making his long-awaited return. Alex, how you been? I am so happy that you let me out of that basement with Wi-Fi so I can talk to you this week. (laughs) I mean, that is where the only good... You told me it's the only place that has good reception in your house, is that one little corner so that I can tweet and update facebook just you didn't tell me you were gonna lock the door when you weren't home (laughs) well you gotta keep the equipment safe man oh that's true it's true yeah but i'm (laughs) i'm doing pretty well how are you how are you doing yourself i'm i'm surviving i'm on the road again uh i'm hoping this will record properly like it did last time with joey because if this audio gets corrupted or if i don't download this properly because the hotel wi-fi sucks uh, it'll just add on to my week because, as I said, I'm surviving, but that does not mean anything really great right now. Well, you know what? This is a big great chance for us to um, that n- new music licensing fee we've been paying for. Let's play Survivor. No Survivor. Yeah. Like, the. the uh... Oh crud! Are I you talking completely about the, the reality show, or are you talking about the band? There's a band called Survivor. Isn't there? I was thinking the Destiny's Child Survivor song. Oh, God, my fingers are so tired. I typed Survivor. (laughs) Survivor. Yeah, there's an artist called Survivor. Yeah, they do. I have the tiger, man. What the hell are you doing to my brain? It's already messed up. I'm so tired. (laughs) Survivor does. That's who does. I have the tiger. Yeah, man. Is that their only hit from Rocky four? Uh, on, on Spotify, it says they also have, have a hit called burning heart from Rocky four. Isn't I have the tiger from Rocky, Rocky two or three. Yeah, it's Rocky three. You're right. All right. Well, let's let our music license pay for which one do you think is cheaper? Survivors. I have the tiger. (laughs) Destiny's child survivor. Oh, I would have to imagine. I have the tiger is cheaper. You don't know what sell Beyonce. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, and immediately we've aged ourselves. Beyonce, Beyonce used to be in a band called Destiny's Child Children. <laughs> Fun fact: My sister-in-law went to high school with. Was it? Is it Michelle? Not Michelle Williams. Um, One of the members of Destiny's Child. I think her name was Michelle. I can't remember her last name. Also, Rocky used to be a series of movies in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle Williams. Is it Michelle Williams? According to Wikipedia. Okay. I didn't think it was Michelle Williams because I'm about to talk about a movie starring Michelle Williams as in Heath Ledger's Baby Mama. (laughs) Yes, Beyonce Knowles, Kelly Rowland, and Michelle Williams. Okay, crazy. Small world. (laughs) So this week we're doing what we're calling Quick Hits. And what that is, is we're going to do really quick reviews and we're going to burn through as many as we can. Uh, We were really inspired by Antonio's three-minute review of Prey. And we're just going to go through a bunch of movies we've seen in like the last year that we haven't touched on in the podcast. And we're going to talk about them real quick. Hopefully it won't be too confusing and hopefully you guys will have a lot of fun. But first, we're going to hear from our friends over at the Doom Generation podcast. We will be right back. Psst. Hey, you want to get doomed? 
I'm Tessa. And I'm Nicole. And we have a spanking new podcast for your ear holes called Doom Generation. Listen in as two foul mouth biddies have an always casual, often comedic. What? I think we're funny. And sometimes chaotic conversation about the things that doomed us to be who we are today. Take a trip with us down Nostalgia Lane and we'll try not to veer off the road. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Doom Generation Pod and on Twitter at Doom Gen Pod. Later, Doomers! And welcome back. We are here to do our quick hits movie reviews. This is where we talk about a bunch of movies that may or may not have come out in the last year or so. And we are going to just give our quick thoughts on these movies, give them the old talking smack rating of must see or pass. And also it just occurred to me, I mentioned before that I am in a hotel room and I apologize if you hear the humming of my air conditioning in the background. I turned it off, but the thing is still running. I threw a pillow on top of it, just hoping that it'll like muffle it enough that you don't hear it. Alex says he doesn't hear it, so hopefully that is a, a good sign. But we, it's all we each clear have on this end. We each have <laughs> five reviews. <laughs> no problem. Uh, there's a small delay because hotel Wi-Fi is awful. So hopefully we don't talk over each other too much. Plus, you know the beauty of editing. So we each have five reviews. Alex, do you have a coin handy? We'll flip a coin to see who goes first. Uh, yeah. Well, I uh, have my phone charger. <laughs> I've got a bottle cap here. Let's just go with that. Sorry, bottle cap. Do you want open or closed? I want spiky side. Spiky side. It's spiky side. You get to choose. You want to go first? You want to go second? Uh, we'd like to receive in the second half. All right. So that means I'm going first. We are going to start our quick hits with Venom. Let there be carnage. Directed by Andy Serkis, starring Tom Hardy, Woody Harrelson, Michelle Williams, and Naomi Harris. <laughs> this movie was not as good as the first movie. It's pretty straightforward. Nothing really great. Uh, I don't. This isn't Andy Serkis's directorial debut. He de- he directed, uh, I believe, The Jungle Book uh, that was on Netflix a couple years ago. This felt very generic. Uh, I will say I like the Carnage design, other than his size that he was too big for me. And then they also, they, they undercut what makes the Cletus Cassidy and carnage symbiote bond so special. And the fact that Cletus Cassidy is so insane that when he's bonded with carnage, they aren't working in symbiosis. They become one, they merge. And in this one, he's very much not doing that. They're, they're separate. They have their own agendas and they're working together for mutual gain. Cletus Cassidy is played by Woody Harrelson in this movie uh, is very obsessed with Naomi Harris's character, Francis Barrison, who also known as is also known as Shriek, which plays some interesting, interesting dynamics. Once Cletus Cassidy is bonded with the carnage symbiote, given that the symbiotes are susceptible to high frequencies and sonic blasts, uh, which the movie plays up to a little bit, but overall it's, I don't think it's quite as good overall as the first Venom movie. Although I will say Tom Hardy plays the role of Venom and Eddie Brock really well. And the dynamic of Eddie Brock and Carnage is, or not Carnage, uh, Eddie Brock and Venom is a lot of fun as they they play like this lovers quarrel throughout most of the movie. And I, I applaud the movie for giving us that relationship status of Venom or of Eddie and the symbiote. It works so well. 
that that's all I can really say. But as far as the, the talking smack rating goes, I would say this is a pass. I, I would not recommend this movie to anyone who is wanting to sit down and be like, I want to have a good time. So what do you think made this not work as well as the first one? Because the first one got middling reviews, kind of an passively accepting fan reception, made pretty decent money. What do you think didn't work on this one? It's very unbalanced is what I would say mostly. Um, It is very much broken down into three very distinct acts where the first act is building up towards the, and we should, I'll put a spoiler alert at the front end of the episode. Um, we should get a list of all of them so we can do that. We'll, we'll record that at the end, but spoilers again for Venom, let there be carnage. Uh, the first act is leading up to the breakup of Eddie and Venom, which that's a lot of fun and funny. The second act is their time apart, them figuring out they need each other. And then the third act is just the big fight. That is kind of it. Like they get back together and they fight and there's not a lot of tension in anything other than like, Oh, how are they going to defeat carnage? Oh, they kind of aren't carnage is going to defeat itself. And it, it plays up to a lot of the stuff that they had done previously. Like they really shoehorn in Michelle Williams character and uh, venom is like whining that he's in love with her and he knows that he's in love with her. And they use that to do the she venom thing again. And it just a lot of it just feels very forced. Like the the Eddie and Venom stuff works really well. Everything else just falls apart, in my opinion. And there's this really weird thing that happens with Naomi Harris's character, Shriek. She she and Cletus grew up in an an abusive orphanage together. They fell in love and then they took Cletus away to go live out his death sentence until his death sentence time came. And she got thrown into like a soundproof room like Magneto did, uh, except dot plastic just like she can't shout at anyone because it'll only hurt herself uh but like this doctor will come down and be like hey your boyfriend got the death sentence and you're gonna have to live it this lonely life even more lonesome knowing that he's dead when the death sentence finally gets accelerated because he attacks eddie she comes in and she the doctor again is like your boyfriend's dead he's so dead and then (laughs) later in the movie they give her a newspaper, which has a secret message to shriek from Cletus. And she, the, the doctor is again, there, like just gloating at her. Like, you think he's coming for you? He's dead. He's not coming for you. And then carnage, like shanks her in the back of the head. And it's just like, why would anyone just sit there and taunt a homicidal maniac like that? Like, I know that's a trope, and like it's done in Terminator as well with the the one cop that Terminator 2 where the one the security guard is like constantly taunting Sarah Connor and like he like licks her and stuff and says all the shit to her. Like I get it's a trope and it, it's supposed to make their death not quite as impactful, but it's so weird and it, it makes no sense to me. It's like the, she's, she's more unlikable than our villain. Hmm. You know, that actually leads me into the first one I want to talk about. Nice transition. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Michael Bay directed a film called Ambulance. <laughs> Michael Bay directed a film called Ambulance. <laughs> Michael Bay, I think, has some talent. He obviously knows how to frame footage. He knows how to get from point A to point B. Um, I was watching behind the scenes of uh, was it The Island? I believe with Scarlett Johansson and someone else and whoever that the person you was in the movie yes you forgot obi-wan come on man 
Is it Obi-Wan? I swear it was Orlando Bloom. No, it's Ewan McGregor. Oh. And Michael oh, okay. Clark Duncan's in there too. Oh my gosh. It's been, and Sean Bean and Steve Buscemi. So anyway, Ambulance. So back in the day. <laughs> so back in the day, they used to provide these things when you buy a DVD or Blu-ray called extras. And it often had behind the scenes footage that was interesting. And one of them was he was talking about how he likes a script written for him. And what he likes is write the dialogue. And if they're going somewhere or there's going to be a chase sequence, just write action and I'll get you to the next scene. That is on the extras. And all of a sudden I went, okay, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is trying to say things. The first one's trying to say it's about a, um, it's about a, a veteran, a war veteran named Will Sharp, who's uh, Will Sharp, who, needs like $250,000 because his wife needs some kind of experimental surgery and she's dying from it. And he's going through the VA and they are not working and they're not working with him. He keeps trying to go through a phone tree. The phone tree just hangs up on him. He can never reach an actual person when he reaches an actual person. They tell him, Oh, have you tried calling blah, 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 blah. Wife is going to die. So he meets up with his brother, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, They're basically, I believe, orphan orphanage brothers kind of thing anyway so they're gonna do a heist big old heist they're gonna rob like two banks in a day something like that so they start the plan and it's all set up and it's kind of like this cool training sequence and you meet like some of the other cops you also find out the reason why it's called ambulance is because like there's a jaded um a a jaded emt lady and then there's like the rookie guy who's kind of excited who be on the job the first day it's like, okay, you're setting up all the players. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. I, I'm not really invested. Um, Cam is her name. Uh, she's the jaded person played by uh, Isa Gonzalez. They go to rob the place, but some cop is going in because there's this like rookie cop who's like hitting on this bank teller. And he gets into the bank as they're robbing it. And things go sideways. They shoot him. Now, mind you, the reason why the cop is in the bank is because he keeps trying to hit on a teller. So I'm like, this is just creepy. You're trying to make it endearing. But this is Michael Bay version of endearing, like from the Transformers Which means movies. it's leering and gross. Yes. Like um, that whole uh, Transformers 4 with Marky Mark, with his whole daughter reading out the like statutory laws about we can date even though I'm overage and your daughter's underage. It's that kind of creepy, Michael Bay. Because he's like overly hitting on her and she's being robbed at that time, but he doesn't know it. And it's just, it's like, dude you're walking in during her work hours with your police uniform on and she's working and you're trying these weird kind of pickup it's it's not endearing it's gross things go sideways he gets shot everyone in the crew gets killed there's a bunch of this this bank robbing crew gets killed in this hail of gunfire except for of course uh danny and will uh jake gyllenhaal and I can't. I do not know how to pronounce this person's name. Uh, Yahan Abdul Mateen. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I apologize. Uh, Yaya Abdul Mateen. Yeah. Yaya. Yaya. Okay. So she's now the paramedic. They take over the ambulance. Cam is is trying to save his life. So begins chaos, where everybody is a monster. The 
local police are monsters. The FBI who comes in are monsters. The local police is basically like, we know we're going to take him down. They're just throwing agents at it. They're getting cars are being blown up. They're just gunning down, like trying to gun down the ambulance. P- things are exploding everywhere. People are dying. Um, at one point, the guy, the cop who's injured goes into massive cardiac arrest. They have to, This is a cool scene. I actually do like this. They have to do surgery on him while running from the cops in the ambulance. So Cam is, has called her boyfriend, who's a surgeon, who, who links her with a different doctor who's on a golf course. And he's walking her through this very difficult surgery while Will is assisting, because Will's a good guy. He knows his brother's a, a bit of a, a scumbag bank robber. But Will's a good guy. He doesn't want to do really any of this, but he's seen this through because they're brothers that grew up together in light. Here's why I say everybody's a scumbag. You call a doctor. This guy, cop is dying. This innocent cop is dying. They're doing surgery. He's like, okay, so you're going to need two people. Okay, cool. And then the doctor says, listen, have your criminal friend there. Yeah, that criminal. Hold the scalpel with this and this. I'm sorry, you're on a Zoom laptop call trying to save a guy's life while you're on a golf course and you're going to say, have your criminal friend do this? What was the point of adding that line? Like, what was the point of you antagonizing the person who doesn't know how to save this person's life who's trying to save this person's life? And then they meet up with um, they meet up with some gang members who they're, uh, as a Hispanic person, offended because they're all driving lowriders with like Gatling guns attached to them and they start attacking the cops. And then at the end of it, because all these cops have died and all these FBI agents have died, they're heading to the hospital to drop because basically they're, they're giving up. They're like, we can't get away. All our plans have failed. We've betrayed you. We betrayed all these people. They are going to the hospital because the guy is starting to code. Cause he's been given like four blood transfusions from will. Everything's just going horribly sideways. Will has ended up shot because of obvious reasons, because he's trying to save his brother now. Dan, that's the thing, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal is going to save Yaya. And they're sort of taking him to the hospital the, while the cop is still in the back st- and they're going to dump off Danny. Uh, they're going to dump them off. And what happens? They're trying to call the cops off because they're heading to the hospital. And they actually say, with as many people that have died today, there's no way we can call the cops off. They, they just lost their friends. They're going to kill them. So while they get to the hospital, the cops are just unloading bullets at this ambulance. When they get to the hospital, they're like surrounded, blocking the doctors and nurses from getting to the ambulance to shoot them. Eventually, there's a sacrifice. You can guess who sacrifices themselves. They get the cop out of there. They're taking him there. And then Will... The good guy is on the ground, handcuffed while bleeding out from being shot. And the cops are just surrounding him and just staring at him as he's dying. They're blocking the nurses and doctors from getting to him. And then Cam decides to like, dude, you don't understand. He's supposed to save that cop's life. And they begrudgingly let the doctors take him and save his life. This movie is full of monsters without a message. I think the message was supposed to be the U.S. probably is a little. uh, Our police are probably over militarized. Our healthcare system's a bit screwed up. That's all lost in just making everybody a horrible monster or a stereotype. I can also see it being a little bit like we don't take care of our veterans well enough. Yeah, uh, maybe. Like the, the bureaucracy is kind of forcing our veterans into weird or awful positions, which, I mean, that, that sounds like Michael Bay. If, if it's someone in a suit and there's bureaucracy, he will tear them down to, like, the most basic kind of caricature. Yeah, I was just like, when they went to gang members 
And of course it was either Hispanic or Latino and they they literally run out of a, like a low rider body shop. I was like, of course, of course. Well, yeah, Michael Bay doesn't know how to do anything subtly or, you know, respectfully. No. So horrible movie pass. <laughs> one follow-up question that I have is I've seen the trailers for this movie and there's one line that always sticks out to me. The, so Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya, they're, they're bank robbers. They have gone to intentionally rob the bank, regardless of intention. They are, they're the bad guys in this situation. And yet there's a line in, in the trailer, at least it's probably in the movie where Jake Gyllenhaal says, we're going to make it home. We're not the bad guys. And I'm like, y'all robbed a bank and you hijacked an ambulance. You're the bad guys. So how does this movie try to frame it so that they're not the bad guys? So the way they try to frame it is because Will needs the money for his wife. That's the thing. And this is quote unquote, the final heist. Of course, because <laughs> of course. Danny is like rich as heck from all of the, these banks he's robbed. He has like a place in the um, like a place in Bermuda or something. He's even on the phone call at one point talking to the uh, the decorator and designers who are organizing his daughter's birthday. Who's in the next day, making sure everything's set up perfectly for them. And he is very affable at first. And the way they make but it's very quickly it's very quickly apparent he is just going to go the distance because he wants all this money because he I wants to go the distance <laughs> till now, I find... no sorry wrong movie so the way they make will the good guy is he's doing it for his wife or his wife and kid and he is always trying to help cam and help the cop who's been shot he is working in the back with them. He had, does like, seriously, like I swear four blood transfusions into the guy. <laughs> he is always trying to protect them because he just wants to get this done with. And of course his loyalty to Danny. That's, that's where they try to make it, but it's very, that's all very quickly lost right after things go sideways. Okay. So it still sounds very, very loose in their interpretation of a good guy in this. Uh, it, it sounds more like Michael Bay was just trying to make a statement about how we're taking care of our veterans. Yep. That takes care of that. And uh, another transition, speaking of taking care of veterans, uh, another movie I recently watched is Ghostbusters Afterlife. <gasps> Yay. <laughs> Which I know you've seen and you've talked about. Uh, so my impression on this movie is this is kind of how you do a legacy sequel and a soft reboot at the same time. Yes. Uh, it is very well done. The, f the first two acts are really good. The final act is basically Ghostbusters one again, but I think it does it in a way that is different enough. And they, they pull some heartstrings. They, they don't pull any punches on certain things, which uh, I'm going to do my best to not spoil anything here because I do think that there is some good stuff in here to not spoil. But the cast includes McKenna Grace playing Phoebe, who is Egon Spengler's granddaughter. That's not a huge spoiler. You find that out in, sometime in the first act. Uh, Finn Wolfhard, who is plays Trevor, who is Egon's grandson. Carrie Coon, who is Egon's daughter, Paul Rudd, who is Mr. Gruberson, who's a science teacher at their school, Logan Kim, who is a character just called podcast because he has a podcast and Celeste O'Connor, who plays Lucky, who essentially is just there to be a love interest that doesn't really go anywhere. And she becomes the fourth Ghostbuster. Um, obviously, you have other Ghostbusters legacy actors like Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Nerdy Hudson in there. Annie Potts makes a quick appearance. 
it, it is very good. I'm going to leave this one short and sweet. Uh, this is a must see in my opinion. It, it does a lot of stuff really well and it reintroduces the Ghostbusters to an audience like us who grew up with Ghostbusters. And then it also does a good enough job of explaining everything without feeling too overbearing to new audiences as well. Uh, McKenna Grace is really good and believable in the role as Phoebe. And I really like the bit that she has where she's trying to tell jokes, but they just always come off as morbid and off-putting. Uh, but... <laughs> so my wife and I love this movie. Uh, when it came out on VOD, what, early this year, we got it. Um, a friend came over, we watched it all together. Ever since then, some of McKenna Grace's jokes, we occasionally just say to each other because they're cheesy dad jokes, but yep. the way she tells them is so awkwardly endearing it's lovely yeah she doesn't understand the punchline or it's almost like she doesn't understand the punchline mm -hmm. like she's smart enough she knows it but she also knows that it's potentially not funny unless you understand the science behind it because usually they're science-based mm -hmm. but they're they're not so advanced that most audience members wouldn't understand them to me this movie is definitely a must-see we've rewatched it i don't know four or five times I'm not going to go into spoilers, but there's a scene at the end that gets me hard every time when they're freezing. <laughs> Shut up. That's not what I mean. It, it hits me in emotional <laughs> feels like a sucker punch. And it's, it's that's right. going, that's going in the highlight reel. Um, uh, that's going to be the tease there. <laughs> um, it, yes. The last act does recreate. Uh, the first movie i hear a kitty cat yeah it's almost their feeding time and she thinks <laughs> she meows at me anyway so there's an emotional moment where it's mckenna grace kind of doing like a last man standing thing and the second that part starts with the music and then a big reveal happens i just start tearing up the last like 10 minutes is just it's just lovely and so emotionally and it's such a good payoff yeah they they do a great job with all of that all right. Do we have a good transition from Ghostbusters into your next movie or is, are we just going to transition without a, a good transition? There's not a there's not a good transition. <laughs> OK, transitioning to the next movie. Awkward segue. Exactly. So Sonic the Hedgehog 2. I honestly I don't even know if there's really a story to this movie. I, I can't tell you if. I, I mean, the first movie, you know, Robotnik, Robotic, Robotnik is trying to get the rings from Sonic, who's on Earth, who's hanging out with Cyclops and Cyclops' <laughs> family. The second, this next movie, Robotnik is back. I honestly don't know if these movies are good because I can I consider this a pass. I mean, not, I mean, a must see. Oh, we didn't. Did I? I, I think we, we insinuated Ghostbusters Afterlife is a must see as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you should watch these movies. They're good movies. The problem is, is I can't really tell you any of the plot other than Jim Carrey is having a fantastic time being robotic. Ben Schwartz is fantastic at Sonic. The humans exist to be there. But Idris Elba as Knuckles is so good. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of give him the qualities of... Um, guardians of the galaxy Drax, Drax. yeah where he doesn't really because he doesn't understand earth lingo he doesn't understand earth technology and he doesn't understand uh metaphors and it works because idris elba is selling it i did not know that i needed idris elba as a voice actor but i want him to do more stuff <laughs> well i mean he was he was chief bongo in zootopia was he 
Yeah, he's the big uh, elk. I didn't realize that. Elk, antelope. I don't know. I think he's an elk. Yeah, yeah, it's probably an elk. Yeah, he's he's the guy that's he he makes the joke of let it go. Oh, okay. I can all right, I can hear that. Okay. Oh, that's right. And he was Shere Khan in uh John Favreau's Jungle Book. In the not live action, live action jungle book mm-hmm, with one mm-hmm. real character in it. Oh yeah. But he needs more roles, voice roles, because his charisma comes through amazingly through the you know the little red in Kata. and it, it kind of the only knock I would say that Sonic the Hedgehog two has is that the human cast is you know with a, a um, James Marsden Tinko Center and their family they are basically sent off to Hawaii to have a wet, there's a wedding going on it is a little bit of the Alvin and the chipmunks live action thing where it's like after the first movie, we don't know what to do with our live action actors. So we're going to put them on a ship or put them over here and pretend they don't exist while other stuff happens. But it's fun. I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the tease at the end um, where they're going to bring even more Sonic characters in for the third movie. I have nothing really negative to say about it other than, I don't know. There was a plot that happened. (laughs) Yeah, I, I've watched like highlights of the movie. I, I haven't sat down to actually watch it, but I sat down and like skimmed through it to get to the action beats. The action stuff looks a lot of fun. Uh, the tail stuff works pretty well from what I can see. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I thought I thought it looked at least fun, if not good. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the first one because it does that trope of all those kind of movies that I not just video game adaptations, but like more often than not just uh, like CGI characters come into a real world situation and hilarity ensues or shenanigans ensue with this one. It seemed like they were embracing more of the Sonic lore and it putting more of the video game stuff into it because they had created that base layer with the first movie. Tails comes through, comes through looking for it and is very much like, you know, it has a different power set, different personality. The personality I believe is pretty true to what i remember from the video games jim carrey looks is bald headed big mustache definitely looks like robotnik this time makes himself of course a mecha robotnik which is not really a spoiler i believe that was in one of the trailers um they really lean into each other's powers and of course towards the end you know everybody has to team up together to fight and you do get them doing more upgrade they, you know, they get more upgrades how they interact with each other which is more you know some of the stuff you get from the video games it works for me and it's, it's breezy without being insulting. Unlike the resident evil movies. Were. <laughs> well, I would say it's a must see as well. Cause uh, even with the like 30 minutes of the movie that I've seen, especially the final fight, like the, oh, if yeah. you're a Sonic fan, the final fight alone is probably worth the, the cost of admission or VOD or just the time uh, to watch it on Paramount plus. Speaking of breezy, the next movie I'm going to talk about is not, uh, I watched Elvis. Ooh. Uh, I watched this while I was hung up in Indianapolis over the week from Sunday through Tuesday morning. And that is a very long two hours and 49 minutes. Oh, yeah. It looks great. It's a Baz Luhrmann movie. It looks great. One thing I'm going to get get off my chest right away here is that sometimes the writing is just dumb like bizarrely dumb. There's a, there's a moment when Elvis has been talked to the Colonel and he's decided he's going to take his tour on the road and he's talking to his mom 
and like his family, they're having dinner and his mom is against it. She does not want him to go on this tour because being on the road changes people and you don't want to sacrifice who you are to get what you want. They're having this big argument. Elvis is making all these promises that he's obviously not going to keep. And his, his mom says to him, do not trust your own goddamn cleverness. And then she storms away and Elvis leans against the doorway, looking all sad that his mama just yelled at him. And this woman sitting at their dinner table, like, I don't know if it's his girlfriend or if it's his sister, there's no context to who this woman is. She's just sitting at the table and Elvis leans against the the doorway, all dejected. And then this, it cuts to this woman going, Elvis, you upset your mama. No fucking shit. Sherlock. (laughs) Like they just (laughs) had an argument. Are you, are you, how dense are you? Like, Baz Luhrmann, you really needed to have that line in there to make sure we, as the audience, knew that Mama was upset. Really? (laughs) I I put that in our uh, Talking Smack Discord under the movies tab just because I was like, what the fuck is this moment? Like... The Elvis movie, I watched actually piecemeal over three days because while I was enjoying it, I was so confused at moments. Like for the first 20 minutes, I thought this movie should have actually been called Colonel Tom Parker. Oh, speaking like, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off at mid thought, but like I did not know Colonel Tom Parker lived in uh, in Denmark until he was 20. Mm-hmm. And so when Tom Hanks shows up talking like he he's from Sweden or something. And I'm like, I thought the Colonel was from the South. Like, why is he sounding like this? Finally, I had to stop the movie. I went to Wikipedia and I looked it up and yeah, he's, he lived in Denmark till he was 20. Then he emigrated illegally to the United States and worked the the Kearney circuit. And then he found Elvis and made a shit ton of money uh, off of Elvis. And there's a whole, it's basically what the movie is about. Other Like once you get to Elvis, like the, the movie is kind of a, a dying fever dream of the Colonel, like reliving Elvis, which I'll talk about that in a minute, but you go ahead with your thought now. I love that by the way, a dying fever dream of reliving his life with Elvis. That actually is a perfect encapsulation of what this movie is. We were spending so much time with him that I never felt like I actually quite understood if this was supposed to be his interactions with Elvis or in, or his interpretation of Elvis, or we were supposed to be getting to see who Elvis is. And finally, towards the end of the movie, I, I was like, you know what? This is his interpretation of Elvis. This is why, even though the movie's called Elvis, I never felt like I understood Elvis. I think Austin Butler did a fantastic job with the mannerisms, the pose, the po- uh, the poses, the sing, uh, the singing, which it was his voice mixed with Elvis. They finally admitted that that's how they did that, and I felt like he impersonated beautifully what we perceive Elvis to be from media. Yeah. He, he sounds like Elvis without doing the Elvis impression. Yeah. Really. Yeah. But Elvis had that really unique way of talking that it, it was really, it, it's a fine line to, to be parody and to be more uh, straight with it. And I think they, they blended that without getting into parody. Yeah. I, I thought that was lovely. However, I don't think this movie should have been called Elvis. <laughs> I don't think this movie would have sold well to audiences if they didn't call it Elvis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it. 
and I will. The Colonel Tom it. Parker abuses Elvis story as told by Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> I would watch it again and probably in a few years, but I think you're right. It's just, it's a fever dream and it is weird. Yeah. You have some of the Baz Luhrmann stuff in there. Like if you've seen Moulin Rouge, if you've seen his Romeo and Juliet, you know what you're kind of getting into with this kind of movie. But what I was going to say earlier um, before letting Alex continue on with this thought, cause I didn't want to be rude with this being it uses uh, Tom Parker's essentially final thoughts of in life. It, it really, it, the framing device is told through his perspective. And it, it's really interesting that every now and then he'll start blaming the audience for certain decisions Elvis made. Like Elvis became an adulterer because he loved you so much. And Elvis turned to drugs because he loved you and performing so much. He needed to perform for you. And I thought that was really clever because yeah, I mean, performers do get addicted to that endorphin high of being praised and performing and everything. And the, but the movie never really spends a whole lot of time with Elvis's inner demons. Like we, we get a lot of Elvis in this movie after like the halfway point, we, we kind of shift from the Colonel being kind of the main character of the movie into Elvis being the main character. Like once, once the, um, the arrest happens for lewd, whatever, and he goes off into the military and he meets Priscilla. That's when it really becomes the Elvis story. But again, it's through the Colonel's perspective and the movie like throws the Colonel under the bus at the end of it, which I mean, deservedly. So the guy was a complete asshole and uh, literally abused Elvis financially at the end of the movie. They're like, Hey, by the way, Colonel Tom Parker sucked. If you didn't understand, he got sued and he died living out of casinos. He sucked. Spoiler alert to events from 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the only thing as I really have a problem with is that I I wanted to get a little bit more of who Elvis is, and they did touch on that here and there, um, like with Elvis's decision with his comeback special that he was kind of trying to shake off the Colonel. Um, trying to shake off the hold on him because he didn't want to wear like a sweater and sing these kitty songs. He wanted to tell more of his story. I think they also did well acknowledging that Elvis was definitely inspired by the African-American community. He grew up in. Um, they acknowledge that fully that where he get his inspiration from the people who he grew up with um, people he interacted with. I really liked that as well, but I still don't feel like I, know what drove him other than okay he likes singing and he loves performing and he loves the way that fans respond to him i did love the uh the very first time we see him perform uh when he he starts doing the shake and everything which i i guess we're supposed to assume it's the very first time he's ever performed as well uh he he has uh his regional hit of that's all right mama going around he gets up on stage and he starts doing the wiggle and the the women's like uh, that that moment was just great like if you had released a sh- an Elvis short film and it was just that moment like that could have been like Oscar Golden Globe worthy for Baz Luhrmann because like you can see just like the temperature rising in the women in the audience so when that first girl lets out that shriek like she doesn't even know what the hell happened like her body just took over her, yeah. and she just had to let out this primal scream as this guy's gyrating on on stage and Elvis just kind of 
through youthful naivety is just like, why are they yelling like that? <laughs> and yeah. like, they're loving the wiggle, man. Keep doing it. Yeah. I, I like that. I also really enjoyed um, when he got arrested for the lewd conduct. I, that's when I started feeling like I was seeing a performance. I mean, I mean, Austin Butler did an amazing job, but that's when I actually really started seeing a performance that he's not given a ton of lines to really like understand the machinations going on in his head. But he gets up there and he starts like tempting the cops by wiggling his little finger. And then he starts building it to his entire body, just threatening them to arrest him. Which I do believe is like accurate to what happened in real life. I believe that is as well. Uh, One thing I I will say that I, I feel is kind of a negative towards this movie is that while it has a really robust cast, it is very much a Tom Hardy or Tom Hardy, Tom Hanks, Austin Butler feature. Like everyone else is very almost even beyond supporting character. Uh, the scenes move so quickly that you don't really have time to, to get to know Priscilla. You don't really get to know um, where, who wears Dick or Montgomery. There is Steve Bender who directed the, the quote unquote Christmas special. They come into Elvis's life and they're like, we don't do Christmas specials. And he's like, I don't want to do a Christmas special. We're trying to get away from the Colonel's vision and we're going to do our own thing. And then it's just kind of, okay. And then we, we move on. I don't know if it's maybe um, just maybe it's just me not being able to understand the accent Tom Hanks did. Cause he was doing like a Southern accent, but occasionally would slip into like a more like a Dutch one. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be like internally, he's talking more like himself externally. He's talking like that. I didn't realize his dad was still part of his crew until the very end. Because they move for very quickly from Elvis gets signed. It's going to be a family affair. Dad, why don't you be his manager, finance manager, whatever his dad's role was. Yeah, And it's only towards the end where like Elvis is starting to get addicted to drugs. And um, because he's being forced to do all these Vegas shows when he doesn't want to and, and stuff that he collapses at one point. And he's like, well, dad, would you put him back up there or something like that? And I was like, oh, he's still there? Like, oh, yeah, I guess they added gray to his hair. I don't think I've seen you for like an hour and a half. <laughs> Yeah, and it it once once Mama dies, that's that's really when the family stuff just kind of fades, and it, it's more about Elvis becoming an actor and serving in the military for a little bit, and the family stuff. It, it's very it, it's it's just too helter skelter. It's very Baz Luhrmann. Like if you're not one of the two main characters in the movie, your your story does not matter. But I mean, it was still good. That's the thing is, it's still very watchable. And I was still drawn to what was being displayed to me. I was just lost in a lot of it, but not in the great way of I'm captivated by the performance. It was more I was just lost because I'm like, I think we're rushing this and I'm not sure who's surrounding them. There is a lot of opportunity to get into uh, what is that uh, Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson movie, a marriage story, something like that. Mm-hmm. Where you can you can Oscar bait with just scream yelling and cry yelling and all that all that Oscar bait crap. For most of the movie, I'm like they could they could be going for for those kind of performances and they they really hold it back. I think there's maybe two moments where I'm like that's that's a little Oscar baity to me. Which one of them is the Elvis you upset your mama moment? I think that moment gets a pass from me because it is very emotional, like a mom protecting her son. But then later in the movie when Priscilla says, I'm divorcing you, Elvis. They get into a shouting match. And I'm like, this, this is the Oscar bait scene. This is where they're, they're going to try and have this as their highlight reel. If they get nominated with me, I would almost want to submit for Austin Butler. I would almost want to submit either that first dance one, the he's being arrested one or 
when he gets tricked into doing, um, you know, being stuck in Vegas and they show him working with the band, how to write music, what he wants. Yes. That I loved that so much. He creates the uh-huh. yeah, where he he orchestrates all of that. Another scene where uh, that could be a, like a an Oscar clip moment would be um, when he fu- he fires the colonel for the first time and oh uh, yeah before which that happens like twenty minutes before the end of the movie. That's insane to me that it it happens that late in the movie. There is still like four or five years of Elvis's life left to live there. And that's where they kind of start winding down towards the like text crawl of, Hey, the Colonel sucked. Elvis died at 42. He had a legacy. So it's a, is it a must watch for you? This is a really weird one for me because it was entertaining. And I think maybe because of my frame of mind being stuck it, while I was waiting for my, my vehicle to be repaired, I was just like stressed out. So watching it, maybe I wasn't in the best frame of mind for it, but I would say it's kind of a pass for me just because of, it does feel like it's almost three hours long. Like there are movies that can be really brisk. Like Avengers Endgame does not feel like a three hour long movie to me, like maybe two hours and 20 minutes, but it doesn't feel like three hours. This feels like three hours. Another movie that felt like three hours and it was three hours is Jurassic World Dominion, the extended cut, the more locust cut, right? (laughs) So I'm a little offended on what they want to call the extended cut. More dinosaurs, more this, more that. Because the first like 15 minutes. Wasn't it only like seven minutes of it? uh, I think it's 15. But the the first, I know seven or eight are that long teaser they released a few years, like a year and a half ago, two years ago of the dinosaurs back in like 65 million years ago where like dinosaurs are fighting and then they show one die and a mosquito bites it and gets turned to amber. Wasn't that supposed to be the opening scene of the movie? Yes, but they cut that out for the theatrical release. Oh God. Of fucking course they did. And then hey, this is the opening scene of the movie. No, we lied. And then they added in the T-Rex stomping through the, uh, the, th- the outdoor theater, uh, the drive-in theater. I'm like, okay, I've watched these. I did not see this in theaters. I'm watching this on Con- um, what, Peacock. I've seen this. And then they actually get to the actual movie. Was that really just what they added to the, the quote-unquote extended cut? They just put those scenes back into the movie? There's some extended scenes elsewhere, apparently. I, I eventually looked it up after the movie was over. I was like, okay, what did they actually add that is different? And it's those, and there's like a few other... There's a little bit more with the legacy cast, but it's not anything really that seismic changing, you know, it doesn't change anything. It's really mostly those scenes. Those two big scenes got added back to the front and then they padded some stuff out later in. That's really it. So these are my initial thoughts. Eon, Grant and Ellie are fantastic together. There's scenes where they interact. Um, Grant and Ellie are fantastic. Their interaction is beautiful. Ian is, uh, Jeff Goldblum just slips right back into the role so effortlessly. It's charming. It's lovely. I, I hate the movie. I hated it. It's about locusts. It's about dumb stuff. It's about evil Tim Cook. It makes your the non-legacy cast dumb. Not only dumb, but it's like they wrote it. They wrote the movie to try to like bolster up how amazing that uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are, but they didn't think about how dumb their amazement is. So like at one point, Owen 
is interrogating the person to find out where the little uh, the the clone uh, the clone uh, woman is because she gets kidnapped. He's interrogating him while he's being eaten by a dinosaur. <laughs> Here's the thing: that guy's being chewed alive by a dinosaur. Interrogates him to threaten him more. Pulls a knife out on him. <laughs> what are you going to do? Ease his suffering unless he tells you what you want to hear. And then after he gets the information out of it, walks away and then looks back to make sure the guy got eaten. Wow. Most of the deaths of this movie, when I was watching the, uh, the trailer, you can see there's a scene where like they're on motorcycles and there's like a, it's like they're looking, they look like they're in Paris or Italy or somewhere. And it's a, it's a chase scene through um, somewhere in Europe and you can see the motorcycles and dinosaurs running around. Right. I saw that as in, in the trailer and went five bucks says they caused that problem. They did. They went to a black market dinosaur uh, auction house, broke out the dinosaurs. They stampede out and start killing people. That's supposed our heroes. And I love this because at one point Claire is being chased by uh, a raptor and she's like running doing some parkour stuff, smashes through like a window, runs into this house and like slams this door shut, opens a closet door. There's a woman and child hiding inside the door uh, in the closet. She has the door wide open. The other door, the bedroom door, gets kicked down by the raptor. She doesn't shut the door. She just starts running again. I wonder if those two people are alive. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Pratt chokes a dinosaur to death at one point. Of course, Ian does a big dramatic scene where he picks up something on fire to entice a not T-Rex. It's it's dumb. It makes doesn't make sense. Here's the thing is, is like Henry Wu, they try to redeem him because like the last two movies, they kind of made him evil. And in Camp Cretaceous, they make him evil. He's in that, by the way. They make him like super evil in that. They try to redeem him because he's trying to do the right thing. They were basically they were trying to engineer these locusts to like eat bad bugs, but they went overboard and some terrible things happened. And so he wants the clone captured. He wants Blue captured because Blue can self birth. Blue has her own baby, and he wants the clone captured because the clone has some genetic markers that will allow him to, if he takes a blood sample from her, fix the locust problem. He tells her this when she gets captured. She of course breaks out. The end of the movie resolution is she gives up her blood and Henry Wu solves the problem. So she being blue, like willingly offers. Oh, up... sorry. The, uh, sorry. There's that. The... Oh, the, the clone girl. Yeah, That's the, right. The clone, the clone girl. girl. Yeah. I, I, what is her name? I feel bad. Not actually acknowledging that she has a name. Um, Claire. No, that's no, that's Bryce. That's Alistair. nope. That's Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, Isabella Sermon, uh, Macy Lockwood. That yeah. So they're basically trying to capture Macy, and they do. He's like, hey, listen, if you give me your blood, I can solve this problem. She doesn't, because she overhears things that, of course, she misinterprets. Because evil Tim Cook is yelling at, is yelling at Henry Wu to do some stuff. And the end of the movie is seriously, he solves the problem and is now a hero. Henry Wu is. They, all these people would not have died if they had just done what he wanted to at the beginning of the movie. It, it's terrible. It's a pass. Please, dear Lord, stop trying to destroy the memory of Jurassic Park. I'm hoping in 30 years we remember, oh, yeah, Jurassic Park was a great movie. Two was okay. And then forget about the rest of these. Just like 40 years on, we remember Jaws was a great movie. They never made any sequels. <laughs> <laughs> That was also pre-internet, so it was a little easier to forget the bad sequels. And, and plus, we still have that great um, Michael Caine <laughs> quote about Jaws 4 
where he's he's never seen the movie, but he, he you can see the house that he bought with the paycheck he received. And it is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of beautiful, everything, everywhere, all at once. Have you seen this movie yet? No, I need to. I'm waiting for a good opportunity yes, to watch it. Yes, you do. Is that this good? Is, it, this is like the movie of the year. I don't give a shit what wins best picture at the Oscars unless it's everything, everywhere, all at once. It It is so good. It stars Michelle Yeoh, uh, also features uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Ki Hui Kwan, who you would know as Short Round from Temple of Doom and Goonies. Yes, I've heard he's in that. Yes, he is fantastic. This is his return to acting, which he's also now been cast in a Star Wars thing. I believe Ooh. it's uh, I believe he's been cast in Acolyte. Uh, I'm, I can't remember, but I know he's been he's been cast in, in something with Star Wars now. Uh, and then also also Stephanie Sue, who uh, is absolutely fantastic in this movie, as well as the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I, I, I don't know if I mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis yet, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and James Hong are also in this. This movie is I'm not going to give anything away because you haven't seen it. And anyone who has seen that has not seen this movie. I, I cannot must see this enough like you. This is my highest recommendation for 2022 so far. And uh, it, it's just absolutely fantastic. It's weird. It's one of the few A24 movies that uh, isn't a horror movie. It'll blow your mind with some of these things that they do. Like, so the, the basic premise of this is that there is a multiverse that exists and it's being, it, it, it's a, there's a, an attempt to destroy the multiverse from a being and Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn, is the one who can stop it. She has this just specialness about her that she doesn't even know about. Uh, she's just this uh, Chinese immigrant who runs a, a failing laundromat and she's just tired with the monotony of life. Her husband is trying everything he can to just like connect with her, but she's just falling out of love with life and everything. Now, all of a sudden, she's discovered that she can tap into the multiverse and essentially download skills kind of like Neo. But the, the catch for this is she has to do absurd things. So like uh, her, her liaison into the multiverse, uh, when they make contact, they like eat their chapstick and then they learn how to do Kung Fu. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just like the, you have to do like the most anomalous things ever to tap into a certain version of the multiverse. And you, you can basically download their their memories and whatever special skills they might have. Like there's uh, a version of Evelyn who is an actress so she can start lying better. And there's there's a version of her who is a kung fu master so she can fight when inevitably the big fight happens. And it but it, it gets it's not just an action movie like it, it takes a really amazing, hilarious and dramatic turn. And it, it's so fucking weird and amazing all at the same time. Like I, I that's as much as I'm really going to give into it because like some of these, some of these moments you're going to be like, Oh my God, what the hell just happened? <laughs> like there are literal, Oh my God moments. And like, you'll, you'll know one when you see it, like they, they foreshadow uh, something where you're like, something's happening with that. That's going somewhere that I don't know that I want to know where it goes. <laughs> all right. Definitely want to watch that. All right, so your second to last movie. So it's called The Outfit. Um, I don't want, much like um, your film, Everything, I don't want to reveal too much of it because it's 
a, it's a, a bit of a slow burn movie. It's set in 1956 in Chicago. This uh, Mark Rylance is an English. He calls himself a cutter. We would call him like a tailor. But he explains why he is actually why a tailor is actually like defamatory for what he actually does. It's his it's his shop where he makes all these beautiful custom suits, and he is it. The movie is basically set in his shop. I we get like one or two establishing shots of outside. But all the action is very internal in this shop with several rooms. And it comes very quickly apparent that in the shop is the mob. And there's some bit of gang warfare and tension going on with, within the mob. And his uh, Mark Rylance's assistant is named Mabel. That's Zoe Deutsch. He, they have a good relationship. She likes to, tr- she always wants to travel. She's connecting, uh, collecting all these snow globes that like people will send to her or that or um, and you know, at one point she wants a raise so that she can go and see London or Paris because Mark Rylance, uh, his name is Leonard. He's traveled about and he's seen all these places and he disapproves that she's actually starting to date um, this guy named Richie. He's one of, he's like a mob son. He's kind of high up in there, but he feels down put upon because his dad doesn't properly respect him. And the rest of the mob doesn't respect him because even though he's second in command, he's young and they don't really listen to him. And, you know, and he has a watcher over him that makes sure he stays out of trouble. Things go sideways very quickly when, a night or two later, Richie comes in. They've been ambushed. He's been shot. His, uh, and now the tension sets in because they can't go. To, they're not going to call the cops. They're not going to take him to a hospital. Leonard has to use his tailoring skills to make sure this kid survives. And they're looking for a mole because they got ambushed. And then crap goes sideways fast. And you are never sure who actually is the mole. It's almost like a play at times because um, I'm imagine this was, I believe this is filmed during COVID. So we have like one location, you have a smallish cast. It's almost like a play at points because, you know, one person will leave the room. Other people will come in. You're trying to figure out everyone's alliances. The twists and, the, and twists and turns start happening and happen quick. You're not sure if people are playing each other. And then towards the end, this huge reveal happens and it, it may, it feels earned, but also it is like, Oh crap. (laughs) Because people, you know, as they're talking, they're sharing stories and backstory and you're like listening in on this and this person with the mob and what's going to happen with Mabel. And then Leonard is seems is stuck in the middle. And then this, the, the, um, the mob is looking for them. And there's always, you can always hear like in the distance that there's, gunfire happening of something happening over there um you hear the sirens of the police they occasionally like show the front windows the drapes are shut and you see the like the lights pass by and it is just a well shot tension earned kind of film and i really enjoyed it i was riveted it's about two hours long and i did not turn it off at one point my wife came in while i was watching it and she stopped to look at it and then and then she sat down and said okay catch me up and it was about an hour in, so I'm like, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. I think that's everything. And then, you know, something happens. Okay, wait. This happened. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It's called The Outfit. It's, uh, I believe it's on Comcast. Uh, the Peacock, yeah. So this this would be a must-see? Oh, must-see, must see, yes. 
So my last movie is uh, another streaming exclusive. This one is The Atom Project on Netflix. Uh, it's a movie I'd been interested to see because I'd heard some pretty good things about it, especially for being a, a streaming movie. So I, I decided to give it a shot, and uh, I was very pleasantly surprised. It it felt very much in the vein of Real Steel, uh, the Hugh Jackman movie. And it's uh, a time travel movie where Ryan Reynolds ends up finding uh, his younger self. He, he misinterprets his, his uh, time travel coordinates. So he ends up four years earlier or four years later than he intended. He, he intends to go to 2018. He ends up in 2022 dealing with his 12 year old self. And he has to find a way to get to 2018 so he can set things right in the timeline. It, it mainly focuses around Ryan Reynolds as Adam and Walker Scoble as young Adam and Walker Scoble is a, a delight playing a young Ryan Reynolds. Like it's Ryan Reynolds doing Ryan Reynolds things for the most part. But one thing I will say about Ryan Reynolds is when the dude wants to pull his, his acting card, he can do it. He does it so well in this movie because there, there is a little bit of a, a father son dynamic that plays into the movie and also there's there's a mother son dynamic. So like me being away from my family right now, like I, I, ju- I literally just watched it because I had the time and was like, I need an extra movie before Alex just like throws his like 30 movies that he's been watching recently <laughs> as a, you know, a, a family of two with no kids and a bunch of cats. Like he has time to watch all the movies. I have time to maybe watch one movie every few months. So I, I was like, all right, let's watch this because I've been wanting to watch and I've heard good things. But like the the family dynamic just played with my heartstrings being a little homesick right now. Uh, so I caught myself like tearing up. But it is also genuinely funny. There, there are moments that actually had me laugh out loud. And it was just a lot of fun. Like it, it's not the most in-depth movie ever. But if this is any kind of indication of how uh, Sean Levy, the director, uh, handles the action that will be coming up when he directs Deadpool 3. I, I think we're in pretty good hands. Uh, it was, like I said, it was a lot of fun. Ryan Reynolds does Ryan Reynolds things, but it's not just him being snarky and uh, sarcastic the whole time. It, he, there are some genuine emotional moments. Like uh, there's a moment where he has kind of a, a weird altercation with his younger self. And he ends up just going to a bar to kind of have a moment. And his mom from the past shows up and he just starts kind of sharing how he felt as 12 year old Adam to her without trying to be creepy or too obvious. So like, Hey, I am your son from the future. And it, it works really well. And his mom's played by Jennifer Garner, by the way, and his dad's Mark Ruffalo. So obviously they play fairly large roles as well. It has a really good cast. Like I said, uh, Ryan Reynolds, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, Zoe Saldana and uh, Catherine Keener all play significant roles in the movie but it is mainly focused around Ryan Reynolds and Walker Scoble as the, the two Adams. Uh, but this one I, w- I would say is a must see, especially if you uh, love family movies or if you enjoyed real steel, I think that'll fit right into that niche wonderfully for, for those kind of people. Yeah. I have a, I watched this a few months back and I, I completely agree with you that one of the things that I was a bit trepidatious going into the film was, is that i felt like since Deadpool's come out that Ryan Reynolds has basically been typecast or choosing roles where he is himself um, falling into that trap like Vince Vaughn did for 
20 years where he's like, so people like me, snarky, making random comments and we'll just we'll just pick the best quips and call it a movie. Um, I was pleasantly surprised that he was trying. He was acting. He was especially when he's interacting with himself because you can see the kid. Um, what do you, his name? Scobold? Uh Walker, Walker Scoble. That he was he obviously hung out with Ryan Reynolds, picked up some of the mannerisms. They wrote basically the kid to be young, you know, quippy, snarky, you know, Ryan Reynolds, but giving him that role allowed Ryan to show some pathos, some pain and, um, and a, a bit behind the facade. And I really liked that. And I it had way more fun with it than I thought I would. Yeah, and uh, Walker Scoble did it the the first time uh, we we were introduced to young Adam. He very clearly spent time with Ryan Reynolds, like you were saying, because uh, you you hear the Ryan Reynoldsness out of him. Like, yeah, like okay, yeah, I can I can hear a young Ryan Reynolds in there. Um, the one thing I will give this movie is if they didn't add that really quick sci-fi prologue into the movie, it's like maybe three minutes if you just start off the movie with young Adam, by the time that older Adam shows up, that movie could be anything. Like I I was like, this could be a predator movie. This could be alien. This could be alien versus predator. This could be any kind of like hunter invasion movie. (laughs) It, It didn't really acknowledge it. It tried to play up the wonder of it, even though like he has hot ash falling on his face Mm -hmm. from the, the ship singeing the trees that it fell into like oh man look at these beautiful ashes ow ow <laughs> so i have a ran- so i've been thinking about this for a while now i have a random question for you uh for spoilers so you can hack this off if you want no i will not make out with damn you. it i'm sorry <laughs> the end part where they show the flashback in time with adam and um laura going to college together did they de-age them or do they both just look that young? I think they just looked that young. Like they took the beard off Ryan Reynolds, which I mean, there, there is some rough de-aging technology in this mm-hmm. movie, but I, I think with Ryan Reynolds, I think they just shaved the beard. Okay. Cause I was, cause I was looking at it going like, I can't tell because I mean, they're both look fantastic for their age, uh, but they're both supposed to be in college and there's some college age kids like around them. I don't know if maybe they picked some people who are more like in their mid to late twenties to put around them so that contextually they look more the right age. Yeah. The, the Catherine Keener de-aging was a bit rough in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, like she didn't even look like herself in either version. So like that, that was kind of tough for me to really reconcile anyway. But the one thing I will say about that university that they're in, like really cool classroom, but like, the building is just like a concrete silo with a hallway or something. Like you would hope a university looks a little bit nicer than that. <laughs> yeah. Especially a future one from like 2036 or yeah, something. Really? It's just a big concrete gray mass with a, like three windows and a round circle circular hallway. It is a little weird. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's a must see for me. I enjoyed it. It is very fun. Like I said, if you like real steel, if you had fun with that kind of movie, it, it does feel like a throwback to a mid to late nineties kind of family action movie. I do also like that. They, they created a, a creative way to 
murder people on screen without the <laughs> being like grotesque murder. Yeah. They just disintegrate into rainbow strings. It's amazing. Uh, the first time that happened, I went, huh? And then I just started laughing. <laughs> like, good choice. Very good choice. <laughs> good choice keeping this peachy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So your your movie, last one. Um, the Northman. Uh, this is Robert Eggers with uh, Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, and Anya Taylor-Joy and... Ethan Hawke is in it as well. Robert Eggers has now written and directed three movies. Uh, the 2015 Witch that kind of, I believe, introduced the world to Anya, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. The Lighthouse, which reminded us that William Defoe is just scary and Robert Patterson can actually act. And now we have The Northman, a big budget Norse mythology movie. I have watched this movie about six, seven weeks ago. I have no idea if I ever want to see this movie again. And I also have no idea if I enjoyed this movie. But it is wild. Did not expect them to go into the weird places they went. So it kind of starts off with a very long flashback. Uh, young Alexander Skarsgård, played by a child uh, named Amleth. And... His father is Ethan Hawke. I think his name is Arvindul. Uh, his mother is Godrin, who's Nicole Kidman. And he, his father has returned back from doing something. Uh, I think he was like on a pillaging trip or something like that. Comes back. Here they are. Uh, here, uh, here they are. They are, are uh, They have start celebrating. He his, loves his father. But he has this weird wound on him that looks like it's getting infected. So he wants to let his son know, hey, listen, uh, I need you to continue the family line and all this stuff because you're officially going to be my heir. My brother is not going to be heir. Florgenir, um, who I don't remember who he's played by. So they go into this, they go into like his temple with Willem Dafoe, who is also called the Fool, but he is also like a mystic and he's calling them wolves and they drop down on all fours. And he's like asking him like, let me hear your howl, you wolf. And uh, his father does his howl. And then uh, the young Amalith tries to howl, but instead he farts. <laughs> and Willem Dafoe goes, that is not the sound of a king makes. And then his dad goes, but it smelt like a king. <laughs> what the hell? comes outside gets ambushed his father his father gets killed he takes off running one of the men uh his his brother uh the king's brother is attacking ambush him killed him taking over guy starts chasing him into the woods he he gets kind of captured but he whips out this little dagger he has stabs the guy in the eyeball like rips it out and takes off running and the guy can't see can't capture him and the guy's immediate decision is to go back and say, oh, yeah, I killed the kid. I'm like, what? Okay. Um, he's like, he sees his mother got captured, makes his way to a rowboat, and he starts this mantra of, you know, I will avenge you, father. I will rescue you, mother. I will kill you, um, Fieldger. He becomes basically with like a berserker with these other tribes um, until he hears where his uncle is. And that his mother is still alive. And 
more weirdness happens. Like there's witches and mystics. There's dream visions. I, and um, Willem Dafoe's voice comes through. He was beheaded and his eyes removed, but he speaks through a skull at one point. And I can't tell if this is like supposed to be like a fairy tale, like a Norse, like a Norse, like a true North mythology fairy tale or just wildness for wildness sake. Do you remember the movie Tristan and his sold with um, Harry yeah. Osborne from uh, yeah. I, I've, I've, James Franco. Yeah. That's his name. Uh, so that was supposed to be like the, the story that inspired Romeo and Juliet. It's like the, an Irish folklore mm-hmm. or uh, a Scottish folklore yeah. or something. From what I understand about the Northmen, it is the Norse story that inspired Hamlet. Really? I believe that's what it okay, is. Okay, I can see that. That's making a lot of sense now. Which therefore means it indirectly influenced the Lion King. <laughs> okay, this is making a lot more sense. <laughs> so the one knock I will have on this movie is that they filmed in Iceland, which I love Iceland, went there on my honeymoon. But Iceland at this time period was covered in trees. Iceland is not covered in trees anymore. They deforested themselves. Um, there were actually, there's this big project to actually replant because um, they lost all their native trees. They actually bring in a lot of plants from like Russia and Canada that are more built for that temperate climate. And they're actually trying to repopulate their, their um, repopulate their forest because they don't have any, but there's like no forest. It's barren. It's not great. So, I mean, that kind of like is a knock on it. Cause I'm like, wait a second. I was in Iceland. They told me how like the Vikings, that's where the Vikings got all their ships and stuff like that was they harvested all of Iceland and it's beautiful and gorgeous. And I really love this. And um, half Thor, the mountain is in this at one point playing a big brute who just murders people, which is fantastic. The violence is, is the violence is fantastic. I just don't know if I liked it. That's my problem is that they actually have Valkyries show up at one point <laughs> And I'm like, holy crap, Valkyrie, Valkyrie's on Pegasus. I just <laughs> don't know if it's good. And that's like, I don't want to keep telling more of it because like, there's all this weird stuff that happens. There's a twist with Nicole Kidman that I was not expecting. Like, and I don't want to ro- ruin it for anyone who's going to invest the time in it because it's a little over two hours long and it feels it. But there is a twist that happens where I'm like, no, <laughs> please don't do this. <laughs> I respect your decision. <laughs> Do not like this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I Bjork shows up at one point. I yes, Bjork the singer. There's a character just <laughs> called Hewitch, which I find funny. But yeah, I I can't tell you if I like this movie or hate this movie. It looks fantastic. The fight scenes are beautiful. The the scenery is gorgeous. There's this battle at the end where they're fighting on an erupting volcano that is like that makes me want to write that into one of my books. Like, okay, we're going to fight scene out of Kino, just copy paste end of Northman. <laughs> I, I just don't know. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, what I had said about um, Elvis, where it's, if, if it's something you think you might want to watch, then go ahead with it. But if it's, if, if you're looking at it, you're just like, I don't know, then maybe just don't bother. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, I, yeah, that's the thing is Robert Eggers, like I, I did not really, really like The Witch, but I like the ending. The Lighthouse, I was just like, this is fantastic. I am so lost and so invested. But this movie, I was just like, I don't know. 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's start wrapping it up here. Uh, let me pull out my script so I don't fudge up any lines here like I have been. <laughs> Where's my script? Do, 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 do. Episode closing script. All right. You can follow me at Josh underscore Scar on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Talking Smack Pod. You can email us at tsmackpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Leo Allen for our musical themes. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we do have a review from Apple Podcasts, which I'm going to pull that up here in just a second, which I will edit it down so now it seems like it's being so long that I'm filling this it's time. It's seamless. The power of the <laughs> internet. So we, we got a review from our friend Raphael from the Geeky Dad podcast. He says, what an engaging show. Josh and his co-hosts are just fun and knowledgeable about all things geeky. It's a must listen every week. So I love that uh, Raphael threw in uh, some some uh, talking smack vernacular into that. <laughs> uh, but thank you, Raphael, for the review. And thanks to everyone who has left a review. And let's go back to the script before I start just rambling on and on and on again. Alex, thank you for coming onto the show. Welcome. Uh, doing all the things you do being flexible and watching all the movies that I can't watch. <laughs> Just leave me a list. I'll keep going through it. <laughs> and then you still don't do social media other than for our podcast, Correct. which I'm trying to peer pressure you into it with some of our interactions today where you're basically making it look like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> and most importantly, thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, thanks for, for the feedback on good pods for the ratings thanks uh, again for reviews on your your podcatcher of choice i think that's supposed to be the proper term i call it a pod player because i'm old as shit <laughs> but i think podcatcher is supposed to be the new thing to call the different kinds of podcast players i don't get it i like why you i don't know i'm, I'm gonna do an old man ramble if i start talking about it so i'm not gonna but thanks again everyone for listening hey 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 our theme music this week Oh, shit. I'm so sorry. Alex, who is doing our theme music? How dare you? Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, watch Quantum Leap. Yeah. Watch Star Trek. <laughs>